0: Break the break through. Break through, break through. Break through. Break, break the breakthrough. Break, breakthrough. break through. You are now listening to Breakthrough News. <laughs> it's 5 p.m. You're listening to Breakthrough News and this is The Punch Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch Out the 18th of May, 2021. Very happy to be back with you here as we always are, and we've got plenty for you here on the show as we always do. We're going to be talking about how the death of Dante Wright in Minnesota is sparking at least some change in terms of policing in Brooklyn Center, the city where he was murdered. We're going to talk about the working class in the United States, or at least some of them, and their support for many expansive broad social programs. But before we get to either of those two important stories, we want to turn first to a new report On the scale and pace of change necessary to save the planet. Well, the International Energy Agency has released a new report, a roadmap of sorts on what the world could and, in its view, should do to reach quote unquote net zero carbon emissions by 2050 on a global scale. And that goal, net zero carbon emissions by 2050, is something that has been noted by many scientists to be critical to keeping the Earth's temperature from rising one and a half degrees Celsius, which most of those same scientists, really just about all scientists are saying is the tipping point before the damage done by climate change would start to become truly catastrophic. Now, before we go on here, it is worth noting that net zero does not actually mean zero carbon emissions. It means basically the reduction of carbon emissions uh, and the use of offsets and or decarbonizing technology to get to something that approximates zero carbon emissions. So essentially, it's the bare minimum standard for trying to save the planet. Now, that being said, it is still a massive undertaking, and that is exactly what this IEA study is designed to lay out here. And the International Energy Agency, by the way, uh, is something that advises world governments on energy policy, but that's why they're laying out this report. What will it really take for the people who allegedly are supposed to be making the changes? Now, the report has caught the eye of policymakers and others around the world because it notes to reach the net zero by 2050 goal, as summarized by the New York Times here, quote, nations around the world would need to immediately stop approving new coal-fired power plants and new oil and gas fields, and quickly phase out gasoline-powered vehicles if they want to avert the most catastrophic effects of climate change, end quote. And to give an example of the scale of the change needed, the report notes that, quote, the annual pace of installations for solar panels and wind turbines worldwide would have to quadruple by 2030. For the solar industry, that would mean building the equivalent of what is currently the world's largest solar farm every day. For the next decade. End quote. Now the challenge is that the world just isn't really going in the right direction. Well (laughs) there's a lot of challenges. But one big challenge is that the world isn't really going in the right direction. Despite the fact that just about everyone is noting that climate change is an issue. As the Times also notes. Quote last month the IEA warned that global carbon dioxide emissions were expected to rise at their second fastest pace ever. In 2021 as countries recovered from the ravages of the coronavirus pandemic and global coal burning neared a high, end quote. And again, now, just to juxtapose that last fact, the report is saying that was released this week is saying that new coal capacity would have to be stopped today. And that's something that essentially no country at all is doing currently based on the current plans of various governments according to the united nations the earth is slated for a 3.2 degree temperature rise over the two degree rise that the paris climate accord sought to reach so even the paris climate accords were aiming over what allegedly would be the threshold for catastrophic climate change so it gives you a sense of where we are when the most heralded international agreement on climate change is actually above the threshold for catastrophic destruction of the earth but The complicated thing here is that the country-by-country efforts aren't actually enough to get it done because it really is a global problem. And the issues of uneven development around the world make it even more difficult because it creates essentially two separate broad imperatives. You've got huge chunks of the world producing little to no emissions at all because the people are just living in abject poverty. Something that leads to the just shocking statistic that the wealthiest 1% of the globe accounts for more emissions than the bottom 50% of people. So in the global north, you have the challenge of addressing massive energy consumption. And in the global south, you have huge energy deficits. And there are thorny questions nested within both of these issues. How exactly should consumption patterns change in the global north? For instance, the whole conversation or big conversation in the United States is all about how every car should become an electric car. In fact... The IAE report that we're addressing here also speaks to this issue and states that to reach net zero by 2030, electric vehicles would make up 60% or would have to make up 60% of new car sales globally. It's 5% today. And that by 2035, automakers would have to stop selling new gasoline or diesel-fueled passenger vehicles to end up in a situation where by 2050, virtually all cars on the road worldwide would be running on batteries and or hydrogen, which isn't even really a proven technology. So you think about that, I mean, how sustainable is that anyway? I mean, it's essentially guaranteed that public transit can deliver better climate outcomes, but obviously building out transit infrastructure would mean a drastic change in how huge majorities of people, especially in the United States, you know, prefer to live. I mean, here in the U.S., we live in a car culture. So the question is, how exactly should consumption change? And for countries in the global south, if they're going to lift people out of poverty, well, who's going to pay for them to adopt and develop clean energy infrastructure? They can't afford it themselves. Now, allegedly, it'll be countries in the first world, but they aren't doing that, even to the degree that they've pledged to. And further, it clearly can't just be about lifting people just over the poverty line either. So given the various issues around, say, the ethics of mining for important minerals like Vandium that are big for these giant batteries we'll need for clean energy technology, what is the right balance of quote-unquote development, not just in the global south, but the global north as well? What does it really mean to live well and live sustainably as a species on the planet? That's really the question. Climate change is typically pitched as almost as kind of flipping a switch, going from one source of energy to another, but not really changing anything at all. But it's obviously a deeper conversation about how we live in a global capitalist society. And given the scale and the pace of change here, it seems like it isn't even a real conversation without asking if it's even possible to live sustainably within a global capitalist society. But this, of course, is something that none of the global climate summits are dealing with. And that, as this study suggests, we will all pay the price pretty soon for unless that conversation turns around. (laughs) Well, the Pew Research Center just released a recent poll asking people in the United States what things they felt the federal government should have a broad responsibility to address. They asked about clean air and water, high-quality K-12 education, adequate income in retirement, an adequate standard of living, providing access to high-speed internet, and a college education. So just for the top line here, Pew notes, quote, U.S. adults broadly agree that it is the federal government's role to provide clean air and water, 87%, high quality K-12 through education, 79%. More modest majorities of people say it is the government's responsibility to provide health insurance, 64%, adequate income, income in retirement, 58%, and an adequate standard of living, 56%. Fewer than half, about 4 in 10, say it is the responsibility of the government to provide access to high-speed internet. and uh, that's 43%, by the way, and a college education, 39%, end quote. So those are your top lines. But what I really want to address here, however, is that there's actually a fairly clear income divide in terms of how people approach these questions, and a notable one, in fact. Uh, essentially, the less money you make, the more you feel the government should actually do things to help people. In fact, the only area where there isn't a noticeable difference based on income is the government's responsibility to provide clean air and water, which I guess is... Really comforting, but here are a few other interesting elements of this study. Fifty-eight percent of quote unquote lower-income people, which Pew defines as making thirty-eight thousand five hundred dollars or less a year, so fifty-eight percent of those folks think that the federal government has a quote responsibility to provide a college education for all Americans. Only twenty percent of quote unquote upper-income people, it's one hundred and sixteen thousand dollars or more, thought the same. Now, that's a pretty notable stat because obviously the higher income you have, the more likely you are to have gone to college. And it certainly is an interesting reflection from the point of view of higher education policy. Democrats and Republicans have recently been saying more and more that there is, quote-unquote, too much focus on higher education. And that so-called education policy should start to refocus itself and shift towards non-college career paths like apprenticeships. We constantly hear, quote-unquote, College isn't for everyone. And this is always stressed as as if it's almost a point of moral superiority, conflating the idea of the right to be educated with somehow looking down on people who were locked out of higher education. And the statistic is deeply revealing because it points to, in my view, what's really going on in terms of this policy shift, and that's the rationing of higher education by the wealthy who don't want to pay for it. As they know, even many jobs that require a college education actually don't require it. And that, in fact, a huge number of jobs could just be taught to people. The main benefit of higher education is it increases the overall base of knowledge for an individual and a society. I mean, why wouldn't we want everyone to have the broadest base of knowledge possible? Obviously, the only reason is if you don't care. And clearly, the tax burden of providing good, high-quality public education is something the super wealthy just don't want to do. So it gets turned into rhetoric about how, well, everyone doesn't even really need to go. Clearly, as this shows, many people who didn't go to college are aware of this. They know the issue isn't whether they wanted to go to college or not really, but that they are essentially locked out of it by the income and class-based divisions in educational quality and access. And they know that the government can clearly afford to do much better and want to see everyone have more, not less, access to education. 75% of lower-income people think the government should provide health care, as compared to 56% of upper-income people. of lower-income people think the government should provide high-speed internet, compared to 39% of upper-income people. 74% of lower-income people think the government needs to provide adequate retirement income, compared to 41% of upper-income people. 68% of people think the government has a broad responsibility to provide an adequate standard of living, compared to 45% of upper-income people. So I think you get the point that I'm trying to make here. And there are certainly a range of ways you can cut the data that are relevant and interesting. And Pew, by the way, does do that in the broader study they released. But it does seem clear enough here that the lowest income Americans seem to have the broadest social vision about improving the standard of living, not just for themselves, but for everyone. (laughs) The death of Dante Wright at the hands of Brooklyn Center, Minnesota police just over a month ago. And their murder of Kobe DeMar Heisler in 2019 have this week brought some small but promising changes to the possibility, uh, or really to policing, raising the possibility that fewer people will be murdered by the cops in a similar manner there in Brooklyn Center. This week, the city council there passed a resolution to establish a commission designed to develop programs and policies to be voted on by the city council that will take a public health-based approach to community safety issues. Specific things proposed in the resolution include, according to KSTP News, quote, the formation of an unarmed traffic enforcement division, an unarmed community response team that would assist with mental health and medical crises, the implementation of a citation and summons policy that would prohibit officers from making arrests or searching vehicles for non-moving traffic violations, end quote. So it's addressing a few issues here. The the issue of um, an unarmed community response team is... Related to the murder of Kobe DeMar Keisler, who was shot by police who were sent to his house to respond to a mental health emergency and the other issues around traffic enforcement are designed to address the fact that Dante Wright uh, was stopped on a quote unquote pretextual basis, as it's known, using random, sometimes imagined traffic violations to stop someone that cops think might be doing something or have done something illegal. It's really the foundation of racial bias in police stops. So the thought being, if you stop having cops respond to mental health crises and you take away less of more of their ability to just use blatantly racist assumptions to stop people, you will be able to reduce the number of police murders like Kobe to and like Dante Wright's. Now, of course, The hard part comes after the vote that took place two days ago. That's implementation. But for once, it's a response to police murders that at least moves in the right direction. Recognizing the issue is not training or procedurally based, that the only real way to reduce police violence is to reduce the scope of policing. Recognizing that police do not equal safety. So while these would certainly be limited changes, they are at least pointed in the right direction. And it's a testament to the community members in Brooklyn Center, including the Wright and DeMock Heisler families who've been pushing officials to move in this way and much further. That's the punch out for today.